Welcome to Talk Time with Max Contact, the podcast where we talk about the latest contact center and customer experience, industry news, and insights. Join us as we welcome industry experts, discuss actionable strategies you can apply to your business, and help professionals like you on your path to long-term career progression and success. I'm your host, Sean McIver. Hello and welcome. I'm joined today by James Vukashin. James has a history going back in just in the last 10 years that's been pivotal around customer transformation and innovation. Rather than me doing all of the introductions, James, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, morning. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, so James Vukashin, I've worked in the contact center industry for about 16, 17 years now, moving into, as Sean said, the more kind of senior pivotal roles over the last 10 years working across various industries and I'm currently heading up the contact centres for a company called Vizu, which is a taxi-based company in the UK then. Excellent. So let's start there. Tell me about how you ended up at Vizu. What led you to work there? <laughs> Very good question. It is actually uh, previous relationships was the kind of kickoff that I've a couple of people that I worked with previously and for they were at Vizu and kind of selling me the good story of the things that were, were going on over a period of months, which kind of tempted me to start to have a look. It's not a brand that people kind of recognize, but they kind of they were telling me great things about the company and, and kind of the ambition of the business. That got me tempted to go and have a look, do a bit of digging and diving, speaking to a lot of, a lot of the kind of board members and the team at Visa, which really tempted me um, to kind of come and join them on what is a very exciting journey at the moment. Excellent. I mean, one of the things that when I was doing my research, one of the things I noticed was that Visu's website states, the amazing people at Visu are the key to creating amazing journeys for millions of passengers each year. So what aspects of the people you've hired do you see as being key to delivering those journeys for those millions of customers? Yeah, I think Visu's got a really good mix of people. So right from the top, right through everybody in the business, we've got a good mix of people who've worked in the tax industry, you know, up to 40 years and some colleagues in who know the industry and out, know everything about it, know how driver partners work and all the kind of rules and regulations. And then we've got a mix of people like myself come from other industries and kind of brought external knowledge into it. That mix is really exciting and easy that kind of has got that external experience plus the industry experience. I mean, the main thing I guess I look for in people is reliability, you know, the, the standard stuff, good communication, really eager to learn as well. And I've got that kind of critical thinking that can listen to an issue. Sometimes there is a, an easy taxi booking. I want to go from A to B. And sometimes there's there's these all weird and wonderful queries that we throw at, throw at call operators that does require that critical thinking. I think outside the box, actually, if we don't do something here, that can affect something else or it could snowball into something. People are really kind of sharp and on their toes and, and kind of passionate and enthusiastic to deliver great service as well. And as I say, it can be really simple taxi bookings or what time is my taxi coming, but the other contact that kind of weird and wonderful that that requires a little bit more. We've got some great people that that really think outside that box in that area as well. I think that's one of the key critical things for me as well, when you think about good customer service and what that really means, and also to feel fulfilled within your job role is to have that skill level, to be able to recognize that actually, no, something's flagging up in the back of my mind here, that this isn't just a simple case of A to B, there's more to this and I need to dig more. And I think you've got to have the right people to be able to recognize and deliver on that digging that's needed. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that, yeah. So... 
that passion for ensuring customers have that best in class service. I mean, I know that's something that Visu shares. You talked about the collaboration or the combination of having the industry experienced and people from within that industry and from within that universe kind of for want of a better phrase, colliding with those external people who have experience elsewhere and combining the two and getting the best of both. Is that kind of one of the things that you see that sets you apart from the competition? Is that something that others are missing a trick or is there there's there more to the magic formula that you, that's been established at Visu? Yeah, no, definitely. I think is taxes industry itself is somewhat archaic in, in the sense. You've got a couple of obvious big ride hailers that have gone out there quite technology-based. We all know who they are and they've kind of set the bar there in terms of expectations of passengers. And then you've got then the ride hailers at a one concept. And then really you've got a mass amount of local players varying from one car and one guy in one car to, to you know a couple of hundred driver partners working for businesses. But there's no real kind of consolidation in that market. And it means that service has never really been looked at in terms of the customer journey side of things. And the, we, there's a lot of focus in the industry, making sure driver partners are giving good service and we pick up on time and give the right pricing and good service and apply to all these kind of stuff. The back-end customer kind of service centers that haven't really had much focus. Actually, they're critical. People need someone to answer the phone quickly. They need to book the taxi quickly if they're going from A to B for various reasons. They, we all know if, if you're waiting for a taxi, the most frustrating thing is not getting the accurate time if it's 10 minutes away. Great. But don't tell me it's five minutes away. And, and when things go wrong as well, you know, we've lost keys, we've lost wallets, we've um, had issues with card payments, being charged too high, all these kind of things that actually seem quite minor, but they're quite impactful on people's lives. So I think for me, it doesn't matter what industry it is. We always set that bar high in terms of giving great service and, and that's what people expect as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to just cycle back briefly for just a moment to what you were saying previously around some of the really big players in the market. I know that the company has what's referred to as a hyper-local focus. <laughs> so how do you define that? How does that contrast to the bigger players? And, and why do you think that's particularly important to your customers? Yeah, no, sure. I mean, there's, there's some obvious big ride hailers out there who are fully technology-based. Yeah, so there's some really big obvious players in the market in terms of ride hailers, and they're fully technology-based. And that works for, for people who want to just go on an app and book a taxi, which as a business we offer as well. You know, we've got a really quick, easy app that gives that service to compete with that ride hailer. But what we also offer is the other kind of routes as well. So we do phone bookings, which you won't be able to do with the big companies. And actually quite a lot of people still like to book their taxi over the phone. And you've got a certain generation of people and some people just prefer to speak to someone. So we offer that service as well. And we still take... 30% of our bookings over the phone as well, manually done every day in, day in, day out, thousands of transactions across the UK. So we offer that service. We also offer in terms of a quick phone service, quickly where's my taxi or there's something gone wrong, as I said earlier, you know, you've lost something in the car. People sometimes don't want to be pushed through a self-service automated robotic route in terms of lost their wallet. They're probably quite panicky because they've lost their bank card. They want to speak to someone now who can instantly get in touch with a driver partner and say, has the passenger left a wallet in the car? Yes, great, and get it back to them. That makes people anxious when they've got to go through a long journey and then waiting, you know, maybe 24 hours to find out is their wallet been found. So we offer that instant quick service on the phone. You know, we'll always answer 24-7, 365. And the other thing I guess we do is a lot of commercial work as well. So we've got a lot of 
local authority contracts with schools. We do school runs, which are really vital. Um, I think we probably live a bit of a bubble. I personally take my children to school in the car. You don't kind of think of this other world where people don't have cars to take children to school or children that have got special needs and need to go to a particular school that's out of area. The parents haven't got a car. So we offer really vital service in, in lots of communities to take children to school at various levels. We do a lot of work with the NHS as well, big NHS contracts across various areas. And that's things like taking patients from hospitals to clinics for cancer treatments, for blood tests, taking elderly patients across to various areas that don't always require an ambulance, but actually where that other service in there. And even critical services, like in Bristol, we do blood runs as well. So if you've got a pregnant lady that has a blood hemorrhage, we do a couple of times a week, we'll be doing blood runs in, in Bristol, picking up blood and taking that over to the to the maternity ward in Bristol. So that's, again, a really critical service that requires quick dispatch of a, of a driver partner out and getting that over. So it's this kind of world that builds around you start to build it. Well, we touched on there that, that kind of hyper-local community to touch, which probably brings us into that. The other bit of it is, is understanding the local communities. Now, you can act as a national brand for actually... Um, you know, the service required in Cardiff might differ to the service required in Bath, to the service required in Leeds. Um, and it's understanding local communities and what they like out, out of that world. So we act as a local player and we've got people based locally as well. So we've got big contact centres, the city over UK, but we actually have hubs in every single town and, and city we operate in. So if you go to Bristol, Bath, Swindon, Leeds, there'll be a local hub there with a, a few people that are lo- working with the local driver partners in the local community. And they do things like that great charity work and community work with the local people, but actually understanding that locality as well and making sure that we, we're kind of focused on that local area at the national level as well, which is a differentiator as well. Yeah, a couple of things to kind of touch on off the back of that. I think one of the first things that strikes me is that actually when you go to the website for the business, you can see the phone number there front and centre. It's not hidden away behind a number of menus. It's not hidden away behind a number of screens. You don't have to Google search it. You can actually find it directly on the website. And thinking about some of the large competitors, um, certainly the really big large competitors, that's not something that's always as forefront. It's interesting because the one of the other aspects is the booking, the app describes itself as a three-tap booking process as well. So you've got what seem to be these two different channels You've got your traditional telephony-based incoming channel, and then you've got your three-tap booking process. So the ease of use seems to be central to the success of that UI on the three-tap booking process. Um, How did you review and refine that process? And I suppose, were there lessons learned along the way? Did it surprise you that there was as much of a demand still on the phones? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, apps are great, and lots of us use apps. I know my parents wouldn't use an app, for instance. If I asked my dad to book a taxi through an app, um, he'd probably throw his phone back at me. He probably wouldn't even know how to do it. So I'm conscious not everyone likes technology, not everyone likes apps. And that's people from all different generations. Some people do just enjoy speaking to people on the phone. I mean, me, me personally, I'd use the app and I do book taxis using our app because I like that quick, easy route. So we've invested a lot and focused a lot on the app in terms of making it really convenient, really speedy. People want to book a taxi. They probably want it quite quickly. They just want a couple of click quicks, picks up a GPS, picks where they are, where they're going, and it's done. So we've done a lot of kind of focus on their app and looking at live views of cars and wait times and making sure their app rates are 
roughly what kind of wait time you're looking at and the pricing, all that kind of piece, and but linking in things like Apple Pay, Google Pay, just re- make it really convenient for people that can quickly do it. But yeah, I mean, it, it, as I said earlier, there's still around 30% of our bookings are done over the phone. So that's something, and you know, when I come in, you could easily push down and hide the number and bury it at the back end of a website, take it off the front of cars, take it off our advertisements and say, just force everyone through that technology route. We only do it app-based because in reality, it's much cheaper to service someone through an app as well. You know, you're not paying someone to service that contact at the other end. That's definitely not where we want to go. We slap our number all over driver partners' cars, on magnets, on billboards, on websites. Actually, the number's there. If you want to ring us, we'll answer. And we'll answer really quickly as well. We're not a contact centre that, you know, you have to wait 15, 20 minutes an hour to get through to someone. We'll answer within a couple of seconds every single time, 24-7. If you ring us Christmas day on New Year's Eve, whatever it is, we'll, we'll always service that contact and, and someone will be there to answer. It probably touches back earlier on that hyper-local. You know, we do have centralised contact centres. We do still have people in the hubs as well. Another key part we've kind of looked at is not if we've got someone taking contact for a certain area, we train them up on their area so we don't just say, welcome to Visu, taking contact for all of the Southwest or all of South Wales. We'll give you Cardiff and kind of train you up in local local areas, in the hospitals, the shops, the local pubs, the kind of key areas, the streets, the, that kind of piece. And then you might be ready to take on new ones and um, you know, all these different areas over time, but we'll kind of layer that in at your pace so people get trained in, in the local areas to make sure they've got that local knowledge as well then. That's a really interesting point because, you know, the, the thinking about the big national contact centres, you get through to somebody and they've no knowledge or understanding or comprehension of your own locality, the variation that you can have, as you said earlier on, between, for example, Bath and Bristol. And it's interesting that you've put that centrally into the training of the advisors who are dealing with these interactions. And I think that that's a really interesting segue into something that I was going to come on to later, but I'm going to bring it in now. (laughs) And it's around looking at your history and your career. You've been central to customer journeys and transforming businesses. And clearly you've kind of had the same sort of, you've looked at this through the same lens. So I guess my question is, are there specific frameworks in your experience that either you've built or that you've utilized, which allow you and your people to kind of nurture that customer relationship and to identify those sorts of beneficial aspects of it, like that hyper-local focus? Yeah, I mean, definitely. And for me, service to service, it doesn't matter if you're doing a gas bill, a phone bill, where's my Tesco shop when I worked at Tesco, or where's my kind of driver and taxi, that service is is kind of key across all industries. And let's say in a crude way, it doesn't really matter what that kind of service you're providing it for. People expect a level of service in the UK, and that's what I'm keen to deliver, which is probably not hugely prevalent in, in the taxi service. It's normally quite quick, sharp contact, almost that attitude of get them on, get them off attitude, which is great if someone wants to book a taxi and you've got a booking in a couple of seconds, but actually sometimes it does require that slightly longer touch to resolve issues. And I think one probably big word for me is is trust. I trust my guys to deliver a great service as well. If they tell me they, they need a little bit longer on that call because they, they're trying to fix an issue and stop that again, spiral into something bigger, I trust them to do the right thing as well. We've got quite tight rules and regulations in the kind of taxi world from local authorities, but actually we should be getting it right every time as well. And we want people to trust us as well so they know if they ring one of our brands, they can trust us to do the right thing. So if we say we're going to ring them back later on today and we're going to go and 
find their wallet or sort out a pricing issue or find out what happened on a certain booking that they trust us that we'll ring them back and get that resolved as well. And another probably key thing for me is always put yourself in the customer's shoes. How would I feel? And that's one key thing I've been saying to my team recently is they come up and they say, well, this happened to a passenger. So how, how would you feel if, if that happened to you? I won't be happy. Exactly the answer there. You're a person, they're a person. If they're not happy and you say you're not happy, there's your kind of answer. And it's always putting yourself in the shoes. You know, it might seem something quite small. You know, oh, the taxi was 10 minutes late. You told me it was going to be five o'clock and come at quarter past five. And you went, oh, OK, sorry. And they go, well, actually, I was picking up my child from school and they were left outside or I was running late for a hospital appointment. So I missed my training. And it's actually then thinking, how would you feel if you missed your train or missed your flight or your child was left outside school? And so that kind of thinking as well as going, actually, they've got the right to be annoyed or they've got a right to question this price and it's putting yourself in them shoes as well then. And I suppose on the back of that, if we're talking about those scenarios where it is that slightly more challenging customer conversation, I suppose one of the things that's a part of that that is some contact centres and some businesses do it very well. Others have what I would say is they've got a way to go. And that's around customer follow-up. Quite often we talk about customer follow-up, we talk about customer satisfaction, we talk about net promoter scores, but the actual follow-up itself, the follow-up to event X, whatever that may be, do you feel that at an industry level that's something that's still somewhat underutilised? Yeah, definitely. I think there's definitely opportunity for follow-ups. Now, you're not going to follow up every contact. We take millions of contacts a week across our kind of contact centres. It's the ones that kind of stick out and you go, actually, there's something here that requires me to do a little bit above and beyond. I'll give one example. The other day we had a disabled passenger that got stuck in a, in a taxi. Now, it was just a fault with the taxi. It was no one's fault. It was a, a manufacturing fault. And the lady, unfortunately, got stuck in a wheelchair in the taxi and the lock got jammed or something along them lines in the, so they were unable to get out. And she wasn't particularly frustrated. She understood there was a, a problem. It was just, unfortunately, one of them things. And the driver partner had to take her to a local garage and the mechanics had to kind of fix it and get her out and sort that out. So it was, it was almost resolved and it came through a channel to us that that had happened for us to be aware of that happened. Again, it was no one's particular fault it happened. It was just one of those things. We could have just parked that and said, it wasn't our fault, it wasn't the driver's fault, it wasn't the car's fault, you know, the lady wasn't particularly annoyed. Then we go kind of dust up and move on. But actually, so this let's just check in with that passenger and say, actually, she might have been quite upset, quite scared, who knows? Just check in with her and make sure she was okay, actually, and, and send her a bunch of flowers to say, we're really sorry that happened. We're not saying it's our fault or your fault, but it's already happened, really, and just show a bit of care for people. And that's what we did. We just sent a quick bunch of flowers out, give her a call and just say, we're really sorry that happened. The driver's gone and taken the car and it's all been fixed. It won't happen again. And just apologies. And hopefully that, that resolving. I know the feedback was that she was really happy. She was pleased and a bit surprised, really, that a taxi company had, had done that follow-up to her. So sometimes then kind of small little gestures that, that do go a long way. And undoubtedly, if you look at her history, she probably books with us all the time and travels. And that's probably restored her faith. And it's, again, it's that piece where undoubtedly she will go and tell friends and family that that happened as well. And they'll probably think, oh, that was really good of Dragon Taxis in Cardiff to do that. So it's, it's that good message as well that sometimes requires quite a effort, but goes a long way to people as well. I think that's a really important point to make it here, from, certainly from my experience, is that both having been on from the being a front end user on the phones and also from being a customer of however many companies, one of the things that's always struck me is that it doesn't have to be expensive. 
It doesn't mean that I'm looking for compensation of thousands of pounds if something goes wrong. Actually, what I'm looking for, and I'm not saying it's universal, but what actually I want is for someone to say, you're right, that wasn't acceptable, and I'm really sorry that's happened. And when I find it to be the most rewarding and the most encouraging thing is when it's then followed up with, and here's what we're doing to prevent it from happening again. Those sorts of steps make a big difference, I find. Yeah, no, 100% on me. Feedback loops is a huge piece for me as well that we've been looking at in, in terms of if we do get complaints and, and what we actually do if they're of a certain level, passengers kind of filling a form online. So we've got a log of that official complaint and whether various reasons, and we've got it all categorised and we've got the reasons in there is actually, what do we do with that then? Do we look in there and say, can we pick off the kind of most common issue that people are, are complaining about, whatever it is, and say, we had 10 complaints in last month and that, let's go and take that. Is that process issue we can fix? Is there a training issue with our guys? Is there something on our website? Is there something wrong with our app that we kind of now need to go and fix that to, to kind of stop that issue reoccurring again? And you're right. I mean, as a passenger, then you say, actually, complained about that before and now they fixed it. If something happens about it, it's not just, thanks for your complaint, sorry about that, and kind of throw it over and move on to the next one is fixing issues as well. And that's definitely something that I'm heavily focused on. So that's taking the, I suppose that's an example of taking a disgruntled customer and converting them into a promoter for the company to use industry terminology. And that makes sense. I can follow the traffic of that through. That makes perfect sense to me. Sorry, that was a really bad pun. (laughs) But what about the customers who experience exactly what they expect? And what I mean by this is that everybody now is familiar with those post-survey things that happen What's the best way to encourage already satisfied customers to actually become proactive advocates for the services that a company provides without feeling that disingenuous or saccharine type way? What would you suggest there? It's a really good point. I mean, we've all seen the kind of pictures and stats about kind of advocates and brand advocates and how much work you've got to do to to kind of make that a positive experience. Rewinding it back is definitely, I mean, the basics for us all getting the good service as a taxi. The main thing people expect is good service if they contact the correct price charged and displayed and gone out of their account. The taxi is on the time that they kind of ask for. And if you kind of tick them boxes, that's generally a good experience. But how do we make a kind of advocate is a really, really good question because if it's late or the price is wrong or you get a rubbish service, you can be rest assured someone will shout about Intel or their friends and family that don't use that taxi service, it was late, it was overpriced or whatever it is. I think there's a few things now that really, as we've kind of got strong brands, social media is a huge platform these days in terms of sharing good experiences. You can use social media for great things like on the commercial side, but we are using it on the passenger side as well, sharing great stories, using things like Trustpilot and pushing positive reviews. Now, I'd agree with you, it's getting the right balance. Uh, if you've got a passenger that had a simple journey two minutes down the road, you don't want to push service down the throat in terms of filling a trust pilot to doing MPS score and now rate how good the advisor was and rate how good the app was on Play Store and rate this and rate that because all of a sudden you, some companies will shove nine different surveys at you to tell them how good they were to put on their websites. So it's definitely getting a good balance for actually if we've got commercial customers, for instance, if we've got a good local authority or a chess contract that we deal with and they're really happy with the service. Should they be rating us on Trustpilot or, or a similar platform of that kind of merit? Or passengers maybe that book in frequently and we've got people who use us daily to work, to school runs, 
going out on the weekend that uses quite frequently are clearly very happy with our service, never complain, never raise an issue, and use it kind of daily on some extent. Should we be doing something proactive with them? That could be a contact, actually, or a text message or a survey saying, thanks for being super loyal to us. We can see you booked 27 times in the last month. Would you mind dropping us a review to tell others how great our service is? So it's, it's, a, it's quite a softer touch, I think, rather than kind of ramming it down your throat. But, but some businesses definitely do, and we probably all see here as well, rate everything in that company we see quite often. Yeah, my favorite one that I remember that always stuck with me was I called a number and I called the number for the incorrect company. I'd misdialed the number. And I was like, that, oh, I'm really sorry. I was trying to get through to company X and I got through to company Y. I'm really sorry. And lo and behold, like I got a text message three seconds later going, how happy were you with your advice? <laughs> you know, I was just like, oh, come on. So that always makes me laugh. And it's interesting because that's the one that stuck with me. Yeah. I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball out there because this is one that I was reading about over the weekend. So you mentioned earlier on that 30% of the interactions are actually through phone calls. So I was reading because I'm really interesting and not at all sad and tragic. I was reading highlights from the 2022 UK Contact Centre Decision Makers Guide. And I saw that the average cost of an inbound call, this is at an industry level, but the average cost of an inbound call is £5.42, which is more than email and significantly more than web chat. Your average speed of answer is almost two minutes now, the highest it's ever been recorded. 71% of contact centers use at least one cloud-based application. 99% of UK contact centers expect some of their agents to be continuing to remote work for the forthcoming year. Web chat's gone up by 60% in the last couple of years. And almost all businesses say that AI is going to be important to their contact center. Now, I know that's a lot of information that I've just kind of put out there. But I guess my question is how do you balance what could, to me as an outsider looking in, to any given business appear to be two opposing forces of customer centricity and the demands of a successful business, especially in the current climate? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I remember going back probably as a little bit younger, I have more here, going to kind of these the big industry conferences and the kind of big showcase pieces in London. I'm probably rewinding back maybe 11, 10 years ago or something now and sitting down and looking, watching things. I'm probably slightly more naive than listening to everything and believing it. And I remember really getting sucked into one speech in there that was about AI technology. And it was along the lines of 10 years' time, there'll be AI people answering calls, whether that's kind of fake face in there and AI face or that kind of AI automation answering through a kind of API in the background answering the calls and everything will be done kind of digitally and the need for a contact center agent will virtually be right down to zero. And I sat there, God, am I in the right industry at this point? Should I look at more of a technology role? Because I can see in 10 years now and, and the way technology is spiraling and some of the bigger companies like Amazon will push you through them kind of routes and go in, contact center agents are going to become a rare breed. It's not going to be much needed for them. And actually, that's far from the truth um, at the moment. There's a lot of automation out there, 100%, and, and a lot of things are being automated. And there's a lot of kind of web chat, and there's different various on, online self-service, for actually contact center, customer service kind of type agent roles. It's huge. There's tens of thousands of them in the UK. It's a massive industry. It's one of the biggest industries in the UK. And it's a, it's a really good industry to get into. You know, there's some great roles, 
great prospects in the industry as well. And I'm a massive advocate of the industry, but in terms of them basic roles in the contact centre at ground level, dealing with customers, they're as important now as ever. And that's because people like to speak to people. It's because they trust it more than a computer or an AI technology. It's because they want a quicker answer. It's because they don't like using technology, all these kind of various means. And we all do it. I mean, I love technology and I love automation. And someone gives me a quick button to fix my problem instead of picking the phone up. If I go into Tesco, I'll go to the self-service tills as opposed to a man till embarrassingly. But, but you know, that's the kind of route I go down. But still, if something goes wrong in my life, I had problems recently with my tax code, for instance, that was wrong on my payslip. I forgot that's wrong. I didn't look at automation because I thought I want to speak to someone and make sure this is fixed. I found HMRC's number. I won't tell you how long I had to wait to get through to someone, but I was prepared to wait that very long time on hold listening to the most exciting music in the world because I knew if I speak to someone, I'll probably get it fixed. So I still do it, and I know lots of other people do it. And that's definitely a service we should continue to offer because that's the route people want to go. But it's a really good point. Is Obviously, it's balancing the business then because if you drive everything through automation, it's cheaper. Everyone knows it's going to be cheaper because you're not paying someone to service a call. But actually, then you're probably going to lose lots of bookings in our world. You'll drive loyal customers away. You'll drive commercial work away. You'll drive complaints to down a different route. So it's definitely one that I work very closely with in day out, kind of balancing our costs, but balancing giving a great service to people as well. And as I touched on earlier, it's not that kind of attitude of get them on, get them off. We could book it probably... Some of our top guys can book a taxi booking in 20, 30 seconds, super whizzes on the computer, get a postcode, get it done, get it booked and get it off. Or actually, should we take a little bit longer and, and ask how many passengers are there? Because sometimes people say, I want to book a taxi and you book it and then it turns up and there's actually five of them and they can't get in the taxi and then it kind of snowballs. Or they've got a few suitcases because it's going to the airport and we've sent a Toyota Corolla. They're only fixed two suitcases and they've got four suitcases. So it's these kind of if we spend that little touch longer on the phone, and you know, it sometimes then on paper will look, you know, God, we spent 60 seconds and we could have done it in 30 seconds. But guess what? We stopped an unhappy customer and we stopped three other calls coming through. We stopped an unhappy kind of driver partner, then had to go and get another taxi to come out and pick them up as well. So sometimes it's looking at the bigger picture, I think, as well in things then. Yeah, I would agree with you on that one. Yeah, the I'm conscious of time. We've got about three and a half minutes left. So one last quick one for you. You talked earlier on about the differences that you've got in terms of regionality. And do you think it's ever truly possible to predict or map a customer journey? Or does it need to be entirely adaptive to the individual? Or is there a middle ground somewhere between the two? Yeah, I mean, most of my world revolves around 80-20. <laughs> it's quite a big big key thing for me. I think you can, I mean, in our industry, you can probably map a good 80% plus of, of kind of customer journeys, booking taxis, chasing taxis, lost property, an issue with the payment, whatever it is. You can map most of them and we do very well and we look at them processes and we look at how we can improve them, make them better for our guys servicing the customer and, and making it better for the passenger as well. I think there's always a need to understand not everything fits into a box. And I found that in, in every industry. And I said 20, but it could be 10, it could be 15%. But there's always these weird and unusual contexts that don't fit inside of it. There's always the context that require a slightly different process or a different mindset in there. So I think you can map truly probably 80 
ish percent, but there's always a good 15, 20% that require something different. Yeah, no, that would make sense. And I suppose the customer journey mapping can become an evolution as you learn that regionality or that business area differential as it evolves. That customer journey based on the feedback loops can then evolve as well over time so that you can adapt those. They're not fixed and rigid so that if that 80 deviates more towards so it becomes the 2080, the opposite way around, you're still flexible enough to do that. And that's a really good point you touch on. We found that in we've got kind of what I would call national processes that sit over the kind of national industry, but there's some local processes as well because we know passengers and needs like a slightly different process for a certain way because that's what they're used to as opposed to someone in Swindon. So we're fully conscious not everything fits into a box and, and people in different areas like things different ways. Yeah, no, absolutely. Again, thank you very much to National Director of Contact Centres at Visu, James Vukashin. Okay, final question. We've got about 30 seconds. Who in the contact centre industry would you most like to take to lunch? <laughs> Good question. I could name someone big and famous, but I'm going to say... Kerry Leinert, who was my first ever team manager when I was a 19-year-old ex-school-leaving, university-going person who said you can make a career in call centres if you kind of work hard. What a brilliant answer. (laughs) Thank you ever so much for your time today, James. No worries. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Thanks again to James Vukashin, National Director of Contact Centres at Visu, for taking the time to talk to me. Talk Time is brought to you by Max Contact. To find out more about Max Contact and how our customer engagement software can help you and your teams provide smarter customer experiences, visit maxcontact.com and book your personalized demo today. Be sure to search Talk Time with Max Contact in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and leave us a positive rating to help other like-minded individuals join the conversation. Finally, before you go, never miss a future episode by clicking the subscribe button and turning on notifications. On behalf of the team here at Max Contact, thanks for listening.